Job 42. So we return a second to last time. Lord willing, we'll finish our study of the book next week. Job chapter 42, having settled the issues with Job, God has spoken to him very intensely, very deliberately, very directly. And even four chapters were 38, 39, 40, 41, directly to Job, speaking to him, setting him right, challenging his lack of perception, his darkening counsel with words without knowledge and so forth. Having addressed all those issues and Job, as we looked at last time, the first six verses of chapter 42, having responded favorably and and surrendered to to God and his wisdom, God is powerful. In fact, that key verse, verse two, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. That is the rest that Job received after all of his trials, after his, his suffering, after all these things, even though he's still in that suffering stage, right? He hasn't, things haven't changed for him yet. That'll change here soon enough. But he's still, regardless of what happens to him in his personal body, in his financial status, in his family status, in his reputational, you know, social status, he's right with God. And that's good enough for him. That is sufficient to him. He Forget about the other stuff. God has revealed himself to me. He answered me. He spoke to me. And Job rests in that knowledge. Well, having fixed that whole issue with Job, now we turn to the friends. And you think, why does God have to, can't just, we just let bygones be bygones? Well, no, there's an issue at stake. And that is these friends did not speak rightly about God. You think, well, they said a lot of good things, didn't they? Well, yes, they did actually. But they also said a lot of bad things and they had wrong conclusions, a wrong presupposition about Job and therefore about God because of all these things. And we'll look at it carefully as we go along. But notice it says, even though Job is the one who just spoke, you would think that, that Job would be in the one in charge. No, from chapter 38, verse 1, God is the, has been in the one in charge. And if you don't mind, from chapter 1, verse 1, if you don't mind, since eternity, right? God is in charge, but he's taking control of this conversation. Verse 7 I have the, the text here on the screen if you'd like to follow along or open your, in your scriptures. Job 42 and verse 7. Now it happened after Yahweh had spoken these words to Job that Yahweh said to Eliphaz the Tamanite, My anger burns against you and against your two friends because you've not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. So now take for yourselves seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer up burnt Offer up a burnt offering for yourselves, and my servant Job will pray for you. For I will accept him, so that I may not do with you according to your folly, because you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. So Eliphaz the Tamanite, Bildad the Shuhite, Zophar the Namathite, went and did as Yahweh told them, and Yahweh accepted Job. Wow. I mean, what is there to say about this? Can't we just move on? This is tremendous. This is just what God is doing in this whole situation. Vindicating Job, having vindicated Job, now he says, I've got to confront this wrong theology. Do you know theology matters? You think, oh, I'm not a theologian, right? No, everybody's a theologian, even those who are atheistic, even those who are agnostic, even those who are whatever brand of of person you are, you have a theology, you have a doctrine about God, and you like to talk about it. And if you don't like to talk about it, you like to live in such a way that your theology, your understanding of God is very much demonstrated in the way that you spend your time, money, um, how you seek pleasure and all these things. Your theology matters. Now, these men you'd think are, are pretty good theologians, right? They're, they're pretty smart. They, they, they spoke in poetry. They spoke these massive, tremendous thoughts. And yet they were wrong. God's own endorsement, God's own challenge to them is that they were wrong. 
Now it says after, it happened after Yahweh had spoken these words to Job. Now I'm going to rehearse all what he spoke, but all that to say is God is sovereign, God is wise, God's purpose cannot be thwarted, but God's purpose is a little bit more complicated than the friends led on. We'll see how that develops here in just a moment. But he says, I've, I've, I've done with Job. Now he's directed his attention to Eliphaz, the Tamanite, and says to him directly, let's take Eliphaz as kind of the figurehead for the three friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. Eliphaz is the first to speak. Remember back in chapter um, 4 and 4 and 5, he, he speaks. He could be the oldest one. He's the first one named, of course, even going back to chapter 2 and all these things. He's probably the leader. And so God speaks to him directly. But notice, if you we read the scripture, the other two do exactly what God said for Eliphaz to do for himself and for the friends. So Eliphaz is there listening to what God has been saying. Now the question comes, and, and there's not really a clear answer. Did these friends hear what God had spoken to Job? All, I mean, chapter 38, 39, 40, 41, did God, excuse me, did the friends hear and understand? Did they contemplate what God had been saying to him? We see different examples throughout scripture of people, when God speaks from heaven that people do hear and understand. Sometimes the person who's spoken to understands and the other people don't understand what's going on. They, they heard thunder, but no, there was a clear voice that whoever it was, Paul, for example, in Acts 9, uh, was speaking directly to him. And it says in Acts 9, verse 7, the man who traveled with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. They heard the voice. Did they hear what exactly was going on there? Or, for example, in John chapter 12, when uh, Jesus said, and we just read this, right, a few weeks ago, Father, glorify your name. A voice came from heaven talking to Jesus, right? He said, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. What happened? Well, There's a crowd nearby. What did they do? A crowd of people who stood by and heard it were saying, it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. But Jesus answered, this voice has not come for my sake, but for your sake. So again, different examples of, did they hear? We don't know. But they had to be set right. They had to be challenged, had to be confronted by God himself, because what they spoke to Job and about Job and about God was not, was not right. And so God says, and this is really the first time that God directly states his anger. I mean, Job referred to it or assumed it, right, because of all the suffering he was enduring. God is angry with me. Why doesn't he set his anger on somebody else for a change? And so, but here God's anger is expressed. And notice it says, my anger burns. This is not just a, a, a slight uh, irritation. This is not something that, you know, I didn't like what you did. No, this is something that is a settled resolution for correction, for admi- for rebuke, for punishment even. What they spoke, again, theology matters, what they spoke was not acceptable to God at all, which kind of com- brings us back to the main point of this whole book. This isn't so much about Job. It's not so much about suffering and perseverance, even though James says that in, in uh, James 5. We'll look at that another time as we wrap up next week with the comments. Yes, suffering is in- included in this, but it leads us to higher questions, and that is, is God worthy of worship and obedience regardless of what we experience in this life? The friends said, no, you, you're a pious person, you'll have prosperous life. And if you're a wicked person, you'll have calamity and distress and destruction. That's, that's the way it works. And Job says, well, what about all these wicked people that are prospering? What about me, a righteous person who's suffering? How, how does that fit into your little uh, clean narrative? Well, it didn't, and that's the problem. They were assuming things about God and putting God in a little box and saying, this is where God can be, and this is what God does, and if we want to have God's favor and so forth, this, we, this is what we have to do doesn't work that way. 
God is not like that. God is just, he is good, he is wise, he is powerful, prudent, all these wonderful things. But the friends could only focus on, well, God's sovereign and God is just, and so he'll do what's right all the time, and particularly in this life. They didn't have an expectation of eternity, didn't have an expectation of resurrection even, perhaps. Job did, we've looked at that before. So all this doctrine was a problem for these these friends. And so God's anger burns against you and the two friends. Wait a minute, the two friends. So we have Eliphaz, Bildad, Zophar. We have Job over here. What about that other character that spoke for like how many chapters? 32 to 37? I mean, Elihu, remember him? What about him? Why doesn't God pick on him? Well, a lot of people have different opinions about Elihu's counsel. I think he was a prophet. I think he was God's man preparing, as John the Baptist did, right, Luke 1 and 2 and 3, preparing the way for Jesus to come on the scene. Elihu is preparing Job, kind of getting him oriented toward God's perspective on this thing, on the suffering and the discipline and so forth, getting ready for God's grand arrival. And so God doesn't need to confront his prophet. His prophet did exactly what he was supposed to do. And so he picks on, though, and I say that lightly, he, he, his anger burns against Eliphaz, Bildan, and so forth. Why? Because you, he says Eliphaz specifically, but all the friends have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. Wait a minute. I mean, do you remember how, how many times did Job refer to his friends as troublesome comforters and people who talk with, with um, evil intent? I mean, you're, you're coming against me. You're finding all my faults, which I don't have any faults. I'm blameless before God. Anything I've identified in my life that is fault worthy, I've dealt with. What are you guys coming with? Nothing. But you come and you say that you're comforting me. It's not at all because you're making things up. Here, though, God is saying, you have not spoken of me. It's not about Job right now. Their theology, the friend's theology, was wrong. Whereas, he says here, my servant Job has spoken rightly of me. And that kind of sets us back and we think, really? Those times when, when Job says God has wronged me? that he has done injustice to me, that God just, you know, he, he picks on me, he, he is closing me in, and, and we used to have such good times together, such good and wonderful fellowship, and now he's nowhere, and I'd just rather die. How is that that Job has been speaking rightly? Well, in so many different regards, he has spoken rightly about God, whereas the friends have not. For example, for example, my notes that say right here, that Job practiced the fear of God. Remember in verse 1, chapter 1, he feared God and turned away from evil. He is a God fear, referred or repeated by God twice in chapter 8, verse 9, or excuse me, chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, and chapter 2, verse 3, and then the whole ode to wisdom in chapter 28 ends with that idea. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom and so forth. So God was feared, Job feared God and had that as a foundation of his wisdom. Job had hope of pardon by God when he said in Job 7 verse 21, why then do you not forgive my transgression? Take away my iniquity. There was that expectation of, yeah, I mean, I'm not saying I'm perfect, but I am saying I have dealt with my sin. I've confessed it before God. I've even offered sacrifices to God. God, why are you in that cause effect kind of thinking, that worldview, why don't you just forgive my sin and take away my suffering? Because I thought I dealt with this issue before. Isn't there forgiveness with God? Thankfully, there is. And God, uh, Job, excuse me, had that hope of pardon, of forgiveness from God. Job repeatedly took his argument, not to the people, not to those, you know, barbarian people that came in and stole his, his flocks and, and the wind. He wasn't angry at the wind that toppled over the house of his oldest son and killed all of his children. He took his argument to God. 
because he knew that God is the one who does all these things. He's the almighty God. And he says, I must have justice from God. Everybody that knows me thinks I'm a crook, a criminal, a thief, an adulterer, whatever. God knows my heart. I need justice from God. Forget about what the other people think. God is the basis of my justification, my vindication. And so he says in Job 31, verse 35, Oh, that I had one to hear me. Behold, here's my signature. Let the Almighty answer me. He's taking his case right to God himself and wants God to answer. Whereas the friends had a very clear and simple understanding of of the worldview, how things happen. Job says, I don't fit within your little paradigm. I'm an exception to your rule of retribution because I have integrity before God. I walk with integrity, and God endorsed that twice in chapters 1 and 2. He holds fast his integrity, even though you incited me to curse him without a reason. Job knew that there was more to the friend's very mechanistic, clean, neat uh, worldview than what they led on, because he saw that the wicked prosper sometimes and the righteous suffer. One key thing, Job speaking rightly about God, is that, again, as I mentioned, less concerned about the loss of his family, his wealth, his reputation, more concerned about his relationship with God. Remember in chapter 29, he says, Oh, that I were as in months gone by, as in the days when God kept me, when his lamp shone over my head, and by his light I walked through darkness, as I was in the prime of my days, when the intimate counsel of God was over my tent, when the Almighty was yet with me. That's what he missed, that relationship with God. And so having that Uh, driving all of his comments in in the midst of his suffering. Where's God? Where's God? We used to have a a relationship together. He had one last thing, and we'll look at some more as we conclude today. Job expected resurrection to a holy life, a resurrection. Now, he longed for death. Remember, chapter 3 gets kind of, oh, why was I ever born? Why didn't I at birth? And why am I still alive? Those three questions go right along in chapter 3. But he expected a resurrection, Remember in chapter 19, he says, As for me, I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will rise up over the dust of this world, even after my skin is destroyed. Yet from my flesh I shall behold God, whom I myself shall behold, whom my eyes will see and not another. There was that expectation of resurrection. God, who is a pardoning God, God who is a life-giving God, God who is a, a personal God, not a mechanistic you know, input-output kind of thing, but one that we can relate to. Job had that right doctrine about God. But these friends, not so much. These friends have not spoken of me what is right. This word, what is right, can refer to, at its root, it has the idea of being established or what is uh, secure or what is um, set in a good way, like a setting of a diamond or, or a setting of a foundation, something that's established. It can have the, the implication then of something that is confirmed with veracity. It's, tr- it's a true statement. It's not something you're just made up. It is something that's reliable. This is something that other people can believe in. It's not just something that works for you. No, this is a universal truth. This is a doctrine that can apply to everybody across time. Remember, Job, this book was probably written, well, at least the events of it happened in like 2000 BC, time of Abraham. Here we are, 4,000 years later, still studying and being helped by this whole drama that was going on with Job. This is a reliable, trustworthy, confirmed truth that Job was speaking, that the friends did not speak. We can see that this is a word that is trustworthy. This is something that we can uh, go to the bank. We can confirm these things. It's, it's the word, that what is right. Um, and so we, we want to affirm what Job has said, not what the friends have said so much, but what Job has said. Now, he goes on. God says, 
Well, no, let me say this. You see the first time of four times in these three verses where God refers to Job as my servant, my servant Job, which we saw back in chapters one and two about my servant. Have you considered my servant Job? Yahweh said to Satan. Well, this term, my servant, also is applied through scripture to various folks like Abraham, called the friend of God, or my friend Job, of course, as I mentioned, Moses several times talked about my friend, the most, well, the second, second most Humanly speaking, the second most person talked about as my servant is the nation Israel. My servant Israel. Not so much the person Jacob or Israel, but the whole nation. But the most one talked about is my servant David. We're talking about Jesus, of course, my servant Christ. But my servant David, because David is a prefigurement so many different ways, in positive ways, not the bad ways, but in a positive way to Christ. A royal, beautiful, God-directed, heart-after-God kind of fellow who's going to rule and reign forever, Christ in the, in the seed of David. But this idea of, of my servant is not one, just a, a petty slave or, or a property or something, but somebody who has a covenant relationship with, somebody who has a, a, a contract, not a, a contract so much, but a, a, a secure relationship, somebody who is, is there not just because they have to. Remember, there's that kind of servant, servanthood that's not right, but a servant that wants to be with his master, that even comes and presents his ear, you know, pierces my ear with an all. I want to be yours to the end of my days. I want to serve you. That is a, a willing service to God. And that's what Job has, has done. My servant Job, God endorses him four times in these verses. So he says, look, Job has spoken rightly. You've not. You've got a problem. And this is a serious problem. Verse 8. So now, here's the solution. Can they just repent? Can they just speak words of repentance? Oh, God, we didn't realize how foolish we were, etc., etc. Please forgive us. Can we just go on? We'll go back home and we'll just forget about the whole deal. No. God is putting them on display as indicating, no, theology matters. You better listen to Job. You better get your doctrine straight. You better make sure that you don't continue in your error. And I'm going to help you remember this because this is going to cost you. Thankfully, they didn't have to die for their foolishness, for their heresy, for their blasphemy against God. They could use a substitute. Now, again, these three guys traveled from a distance. You can mention all their different places and different places in the ancient Near East. Coming together to Job, wherever he was, maybe uh, around the Dead Sea over there on the eastern side, or maybe up in, in uh, modern-day Syria. Who knows where he was in that relation? Just he was there in the ancient Middle East, ancient Near East. And these friends traveled from a distance to, to meet with Job. You don't think that they traveled with a caravan of, as it says here, bulls and rams. Did they, did they each anticipate, hey, we better, we better bring some, some bulls? Maybe they did, right? Because who's going to eat their stuff? You get, they bring their grocery store with them. Maybe they did. But the point is, you've got to spend some money here. You've got to relinquish. It's going it's to cost you your sin, your foolishness here. So he says, take for yourselves seven bulls and seven rams and offer them up as a burnt offering for yourselves. Okay, no problem. Seven bulls, seven rams. How much is that going to cost? Do you know in our modern day, a bull of an adult kind of a a situation costs about $2,000. Well, that's, that's a lot of money. How many of those bulls am I supposed to offer? Seven each. Do the math. Okay, that's like a lot of money. Is that like 14? Am I doing the math right? Seven, seven times four. That's, that's a lot of money. Well, how much does a ram cost? Because it's seven bulls and seven rams. A ram, adult ram, costs about $1,000 in our economy. And how many of those have to, 
the seven rams. Okay, so you have $14,000 plus another seven. That's like $21,000 times three, $63,000 for just talking improperly about God. Surely God, you're not worth that, are you? Yeah, he is worth that. You better get your doctrine straight. It matters what you believe. It matters what you talk about God. You take for yourself seven bulls and seven rams. And it's not that, you know, some of the, and this prefigures, this predates all the Levitical laws, all the different sacrifices that he, he mandates and legislates and so forth. This comes before. But there's one thing about a burnt offering that has been practiced before. We'll look at some examples. A burnt offering is not something that you can, you know, I, I'd like that cut of meat. I'm going to take that and we're going to have a little barbecue on the side. The rest of that can be burned up. You know, the hooves and, the, and all that. And I don't need that, but oh, this sirloin or tenderloin or, or whatever. No, a burnt offering, you put the whole thing, it's gone, consumed. Who benefits? Well, God benefits because it's a sweet aroma in his nostrils. And you think, how can that be? Y'all ever been to a barbecue? I mean, that's a good thing. But the, the friends also benefited because they had an atoning sacrifice. They had the covering for their foolish, their wicked foolishness, as he says here very shortly. And so, but a burnt offering, where'd they get this idea? How about like from the very beginning? There's a, a question. You remember back in Genesis uh, 3 when, when a proof, an indication of the depravity of mind of Adam and Eve is they thought they could cover uh, happily and comfortably cover their nakedness with fig leaves. And great-granddaddy would say, that is just the most foolish thing you'd ever want to do. Fig leaves are itchy, and they, they're not good. And so God says, y'all don't know anything. Let me cover you properly. And so what did God do? He took skin of an animal. Well, what happened to the rest of the animal? It doesn't matter. It's pictured at the Creation Museum that they offered that as a sacrifice, I, I believe. But that that skin was used to cover their nakedness. When you go to the next chapter, Genesis 4, do you remember the sacrifices that Cain and Abel offered God? Cain offered some, some produce, some vegetables and fruits and whatever. Abel offered the first of his livestock, some offering, a burnt offering to God. We see when Noah came off the ark, wait a minute, Noah, you spent all this time preserving these animals, keeping these animals alive, and now we're going to sacrifice some burnt offering? Why didn't, well... God anticipated, right, take two of every kind, but seven of others. Those, from those seven are going to be used for burnt offerings that Noah did, predating what I think, Abraham. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, these different people had indications and practices of burnt offerings. Didn't we read back in Job chapter 1, verse 5, when Job offered sacrifices for his children, if perhaps maybe they had innocently, perhaps, but cursed God in their hearts, spoken things, believed things that were not right. Job was very careful. Whenever he had opportunity to offer sacrifices, offer burnt offerings on their behalf. And so the precedent, I guess is what I'm saying, the precedent for burnt offerings is well established in scripture up to this time. And so God, it's not a new idea to them. They say, okay, I know what you're talking about. We'll get it done. Offer up a burnt offering for yourselves. And what happens? My servant Job will pray for you. Oh, wait a minute. That's kind of presumptuous, isn't it, God? Why, why would you think Job, who was kind of at odds with these friends, why do you think, God, why do you think that Job is going to do what you says? Job's going to pray for these characters? Yes, he will. And it has the indication, even though it's not so starkly stated 
that Job repented and that God forgave Job, there was really nothing to forgive. But there was the issue, something's not right between, you, between what you are saying about me, Job, which God addressed and, and dealt with, and Job recanted, pulled those back. Job was forgiven in some respects in this present state, but he, he knows what forgiveness looks like because he, he says, I, I'm not a perfect guy, but I come before the Lord through burnt offering, through sacrifice, through humility, listening, fearing him. And so because he knows what forgiveness from God feels like for himself, he's able to extend that to others. There is a few examples. I get one we'll look at, just consider. Remember when the, the um, and this doesn't really have to do with forgiveness, but it shows the attitude, I think, going on in, in Job's mind. Do you remember when Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane and this crowd with with you know, it's at night, right, midnight. And so these the big crowd of soldiers and, and swords and, and um, torches, is the idea I was trying to think of. They're coming, trying to arrest Jesus. And one of his followers, probably Peter, takes his sword and swipes off the ear of, of Malchus. And Jesus could have said, yeah, serves your right, Malchus. What are you doing out here? No, Jesus comes down. And Luke is the one who records it. I looked to confirm. Luke is the one who says Jesus healed that servant's ear. Why did Jesus do that? kindness, gentleness. It's not his fault. I'm responding. I didn't come to bring judgment on this world. I came to save the world. I'll bring judgment another time. Don't worry about that. That's coming. But right now I have come to seek and to save the lost, right? Luke 19.10, key verse of the whole gospel. And so we can follow that same example, showing gentleness, kindness. These people, these friends that came, they came initially to comfort, right? Comfort and console Job. Didn't turn out very well. And even there's some question of, did they really come to comfort him or did they come to make sure that what happened to Job doesn't happen to them? And they want to make sure that Job understands and all the people understand. Job is a nasty, no good, or no do, no, ne'er do well. There's the word. He's, he's just a sinner. But us guys, I mean, we've got all this, this prosperous stuff because God likes us and we're righteous and all. And so Job's over there and we're over here. And maybe that's what they were after ostensibly, right? Visually, visibly, they came with the idea of comforting Job. Job did not receive it there, receive their comfort. Again, terrible, troublesome counselors. You guys are windbags. You guys are, you know, poor comfort. Are you giving me good grief? Why don't you just punch me and deal with me that way? Uh, their words were not gracious words to Job. But God expects Job to pray for them, to be a mediator for them. They're to offer these sacrifices for themselves. Later we see that God establishes priests to do, to do that. And that if you offer a sacrifice for yourself, that's what got Saul in trouble, right? King Saul, not a good thing. But this, is, this predates that time. So you can offer a sacrifice for yourself, uh, for your, your children, as Job did in chapter 1, verse 5. And God says, my servant Job will pray for you. Verse 8 goes on and says, I will accept him. Wow. So it's not just that Job is mediating. He is the one that his prayer really is the defining moment. These burnt offerings are the prerequisite, of course, but it's the prayer of Job. It's that mediation. It is that overflowing of God's grace upon his own life that extends now to his friends. God has been so good to me. He's restored me. He's spoken to me. I know he is just. I know he's good. I know he loves me. Now I can love other people. You guys are not very easy to love. You guys said a lot of nasty things about God and about me. But I'm going to pray. And God says, I will accept him. The, several times he says, two or three times in these verses, it says, uh, I will accept him. Or in verse 9, it says, Yahweh accepted him. That 
literally has the idea of lifting the face up to, um, has the idea of granting a request, it has the idea of honoring somebody, accepting somebody, I'll lift the face of, of, of so forth, or even in the uh, ironic blessing, the blessing that Aaron was to, to, to um, pronounce upon the people, may God lift up his countenance upon you. To have that visual uh, engagement that, that Job has longed for, and now he says, I'm going to look at him right in the eyes, and I'm going to receive him. I'm going to receive him and thereby receive his prayer for you. Now he says something, God, God says something rather unusual here, verse 8. He says, I will accept him so that I may not do with you according to your folly. And again, most translations have similar, similar words. I've not, I will not do to you according to your folly. Now this word folly we've seen before. Remember when Job's wife came before him back in chapter 2, he says, she said to him, curse God and die. And what is there left for you to do? Just get over with curse God, he'll kill you, and he'll be done. And he responds, you're speaking as one of the wickedly foolish women speaks. And he goes on and says, shall we not accept the bad things, the calamity from God, and only the good things? Even so, Job did not curse God in his heart or with his words. And so wickedly foolish is this idea. Here, we see your folly. It's not just ignorance. It's not just, oh, I was mistaken, didn't realize. No, it is something that is a wicked intent. This is something that is there to bring blasphemy, bring reproach upon God. It is something that is, is intended to build me up, something that makes me look good. Do you remember how in, in uh, excuse me, Psalm 14, verse 1 says, the wicked say that there is no God? Well, why would they say that? Because they don't want a God. They don't want anybody who's telling them what to do or, or going to ask them, hey, what did you do? And, and you're, you're going to pay for that, right? Uh, they don't want that. And so the wicked fool says, no, there's no God. Wicked foolishness is all throughout Scripture. And it's not just an intellectual issue. It is a spiritual, moral, integral issue. I and mean, just the whole body, the human depravity is so uh, extensive in our lives. And so when God says, I don't want to do with you according to what you deserve, your wicked foolishness, your gross sin, uh, really a disreputable thing, just something that you're better than that. I made you better than that, right? God made men upright, but they've sought out many devices, not just electronic devices, trying to find other ways. Can't we do this another way? Can't, isn't there another God that we can serve and worship? Isn't there something? Maybe we don't even need a God. Can't we just be our own gods? No. Don't pursue wicked foolishness. I'm going to accept Job so that I don't do, you, do with you according as your folly deserves. And so this idea then is that they have done a foolish thing, a, a wicked thing, a disgraceful thing, something that's going to lead other people away from the right understanding of God, which is something, if you remember, something they accused Job of doing. Job, if you continue saying these things, other, you're going to affect other people's faith in God. Well, yes, because Job is speaking what is right, ultimately speaking what is right, and we do have a pervasive effect upon other people. That's why when, when people say, well, I'm no theologian, yes, Everybody's a theologian. Well, I'm no trained counselor. Do you talk about things? Do you talk about what you think is right, what, what you think is wrong? Do you think about what is valuable, what is not valuable? Don't you have value statements all the time? Look at that beautiful sunset. Don't look right now. It's the middle of the day. But you, you, we make value statements and encouragements to do this or that. You know, Go to this restaurant, go to this store, buy this thing on discount. We counsel all the time. But is our counsel right? Is our doctrine right? We want to be careful to witness 
properly, be a proper witness of God as Job did and as God is calling these friends to come to God through Job. And again, he repeats this idea, you've not spoken to me what is right as my servant Job has. Now, what is striking about this? Job prays for them, but first, backing up, they actually come. They humble themselves. Eliphaz, verse 9, Eliphaz, we got them by name, right? And they're, they're uh, you know, nomenclatures, they're, they're, where are they from? Eliphaz, the Tamanite, Bildad, the Shuhite, Zophar, the Namathite, went and did as Yahweh told them. Isn't that beautiful? And one of one of my favorite eras in biblical history is the time of Joshua, not because of all the killing, but because there is such a spirit of obedience, such a, a submission to what, a willing desire to please God and do what he says. And when you see the example in chapter 7 of Joshua's account, the sin of Achan, and things just fell apart because, no, there's sin in the camp. Joshua, don't you come calling to me saying, God, why I thought you were with us. I'm with you, but you've got sin in the camp. Go deal with it. You've got to deal with this thing. And so, that, but that spirit of obedience, and they went, and they did, right? Joshua 7, read it, it's beautiful. Uh, the confession that's going on there, this, this, this immediate, not justifying, not um, saying, well, I, I thought this and, and this and, and that, and, and excusing themselves, or, or saying, well, Job did this, or, you know, the victim mindset. No, immediate, not complaining, not waiting around, okay, Guys, should we do this today or, or next week? Or should we do it at all? I mean, who is this Yahweh that we should... You better, you better pay attention. And so they did. They humbled themselves. They went and did as Yahweh told them. And Yahweh accepted Job. Yahweh lifted up the face of Job. He granted his request. There was this beautiful a moment of offering how many? Seven times three. So 21 bulls, 21 rams. Do you think that took a little while? And was there any benefit to the people I mean, in terms of, you know, gastro, gastrointestinally, you know, uh, there's a nicer way to say that, right? Eating. Uh, there you go. Uh, is there, could they eat in that offering and in that sacrifice? No, they couldn't do it. It was for God's benefit. It just goes up. $63,000 burned up. But their sin was atoned for. And they had a mediator, Job, interceding for God. Well, as we wrap up, some concluding thoughts about them because we're going to have this restoration, beautiful restoration in chapters four, uh, chapter uh, 42, 10 through following. Do you remember the friends' false assumptions? We've seen this before. Suffering follows sin. That's how it works, right? Prosperity follows piety. If you're a pious person, well, you'll be a prosperous person. If you're a sinner, you're going to have suffering, God's punishment upon you in this life. It's an inversion of Satan's initial accusation. Job's only pious or Job only fears you because of what you give him. And if you take it away, then he's going to curse you to your face. <clears throat> it's wrong. The friends were wrong because of their three different reasons. They had a minimal perspective. They were just wrong. They were, they were totally, it's kind of like Ecclesiastes says, under the sun kind of thinking. This is how we explain the world based on our observation, based on precedent, historical precedent, based on philosophy, based on these different things. But they were limited in so many different respects regarding their worldview, regarding their perspective on life. And, and of course, didn't, hinder them from trying to explain it, right? They were theologians, they were counselors, they were saying all these things for God's, uh, you know, trying to explain God. But no, that's, that's not what was helpful to them. They had a minimal perspective such that they just didn't know what they didn't know. They needed something beyond what they had within themselves. Really shows the limitation of natural revelation. Psalm 19, tremendous, verses one through six, saying, hey, you can learn a lot about God, 
through natural revelation, through observation and, uh, and a scientific process and so forth. But there are certain things we, we won't even know that we don't know about them unless God tells us about them. And we need that revelation from God. The friends were wrong because they had this mechanistic principle of cause and effect. If you do this, this, is going to, this, is, this will be what happens. And to a certain degree, that's true. And even ultimately, right, the sowing and reaping principle, if you're an evil person, you expect judgment. Ultimately, yes, that is the way. In this life, not so much. There is a, a, a delay, perhaps, between when a, a wicked deed is done and maybe that wicked person never comes to justice in this life. But do you think God knows? If that person does not repent, do you think that's going to be a problem? Oh, well, he didn't judge him in life, so it must not have been that big a deal. Don't we have an eternity beyond time? Isn't that probably the more serious situation? Don't you realize that having a mechanistic principle of cause effect of, of uh, you know, uh, suffering or sin follows suffering or suffering follows sin both ways it works. It's true, but it's very simple, very simplistic view, and it really puts God in a box and say, well, you just curse God, so you need to die. Well, yes and no. Okay, so there's that whole thing of, of justice, and the God will bring to justice every act and for good or for evil. That's the last verses of Ecclesiastes 12. A final reason, these are big ideas, big thoughts, but they had a mercenary purpose. How were the friends wrong? They said, hey, Job, just seek God. He'll give you all the stuff back. If, if you just you know, treat God as a, as a genie or rub that, that lamp and, and do what God wants you to do, he'll, he'll prosper. He'll return all that stuff. He'll make your light shine like the noonday, just like the psalmists and the Proverbs say. But that was what they were after, the mercenary. The, just the, they, were, they would be satisfied with the stuff. Job says, forget about the stuff. I want God. I must have him. And so they were wrong in that regard. So how do we see the gospel? Again, four ideas right here. To to wrap it up, these are wonderful ideas. We see the need for divine revelation. If these people had a minimal perspective, uh, then we need divine revelation. We need God to speak. There are many things we cannot know know unless God tells us. And so we, we realize that. We realize that there is God's wrath. Remember God's anger burned against these friends. Oh, there's the expectation of, uh, expectation of wrath against the friends. But Job had that understanding against, for his children back in chapter 1, verse 5. If perhaps these, these sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. And so Job was very careful to appease God's wrath. There is the presence of an atoning sacrifice in that Job 1, verse 5 thing, offering burnt offerings. And then, of course, as God had told the friends, take yourselves seven bulls, seven rams, offer up a burnt offering for yourselves. Finally, we see Job is speaking of a willing mediator. He longed for this willing mediator. Remember, he said back in chapter 9, God is not a man as I am, that I may answer him, that we may go to court for judgment together. There is no adjudicator or mediator, one between us, who may lay his hand upon us both and bring us together. There's, There's no one, and yet there is, and he would later comment on that whole thing. Well, let me fast forward a little bit from this, and this I promise this is actually the last of the, of the comments this morning. Divine revelation. All these things, divine revelation, God's wrath, atoning sacrifice, and a willing mediator, all are brought together in our Lord Jesus Christ. Are they not? Doesn't John 1 and verse 18 says, No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. How do we know God? through Jesus. 
He has explained him. Hebrews 1, we can read about how God, how Christ himself is that final word, that last communication from God. What about the appeasement of God's wrath? Haven't we seen that, for example, in Colossians 2, you being dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive with him. That's God the Father making us alive with Christ, having graciously forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. He's also taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. There is an appeasement of God's wrath in these things and a atoning sacrifice through our Lord Jesus Christ. Ephesians 1 and verse 7 says, In Christ we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our transgressions, according to the riches of his grace. And even referring to that aroma, that sweet aroma of the, of the sacrifice, Ephesians 5 verses 1 and 2 says, Be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love, just as Christ also loved us and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. Do we have a willing mediator? Our Lord Jesus Christ, who is God's own word, who appeased God's wrath, who offered himself, not seven bulls and seven rams and all this, he offered himself. Wow, what a sacrifice for himself. And now he is a willing mediator. In fact, we see this last scripture in 1 Timothy chapter 2. First of all, Paul says, I exhort the petitions and prayers, which is what Job did, right? Petitions, prayers, requests, thanksgivings be made for all men, especially your enemies, Job. They're not your enemies anymore. They're repenting, they're humble pray for kings and all who are in authority so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. Why should we do this? Because this is good and acceptable in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the full knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator also between God and man, men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all, the witness for this proper time. We see divine revelation, God's wrath, an atoning sacrifice, a willing mediator, all brought together in our Lord Jesus Christ. The gospel according to Job brings us to the gospel of Christ. Our Father in heaven, we're so grateful for the truth of your word. We're thankful for our Lord Christ who suffered and died for, for sinners, for enemies, those who did not speak rightly, do rightly by you, but you are a saving God. You are a sanctifying God. We're so thankful for that. Thank you for Job's example in so many regards, and even these friends who humbled themselves and, and went in contrition before you and offered them uh, offered their obedience and, and, uh, and um, submission to you, obeying your word. We thank you for these wonderful examples that really point in so many regards to our Lord Jesus Christ, a lovely Savior, a sufficient sacrifice, one who is even now mediating, interceding for us. We're grateful that we have that security in Christ. We thank you for what perhaps might be the first book of the Bible here in Job, not, well, perhaps first written, chronologically speaking, first in terms of events uh, recorded, but we are thankful that you anticipated and led us to to consider these important doctrines about yourself. You are a sovereign God. You're an all-wise God. You are a wrathful God, a just God, but also you provide an atoning sacrifice and a willing mediator in our person, the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray that you'd save and sanctify each one. Help us to be your people. Walk like it, act like it, talk like it, and all the things. Please be honored. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.